Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Today, we are finishing our conversation with Michael DeWitt Jr., author, journalist, and editor of the Hampton County Guardian in Hampton County, South Carolina. Michael is taking us inside the courtroom of the Murdoch trial, which he covered from start to finish. Thanks again for listening, and enjoy. Michael, welcome back to Crime Capsule, and thank you again for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Let's step inside that courtroom. You were there nearly every day of the entire trial, is that right? That's right. I I may have missed three days because of family obligations, but I was there from start to finish, Uh, And I'm still here in Hampton County reporting on the aftermath. At the very beginning, uh, in those first few days, the first week, what was the atmosphere like inside? Well, I can can, uh, answer that question before we even step into the courtroom. If you know anything about uh, small town uh, festivals, uh, Hampton County has a watermelon festival. And it's actually a large part of it is centered around our county courthouse. So you have... Uh, you have food trucks, you have uh, tents and lights and people selling merchandise. And uh, <clears throat> so the very first day, first morning, I arrived before daylight in Walterboro, and there's a media city, a little mini media city set up uh, ar- around the courthouse in the adjacent blocks. There are food trucks uh, across the street to, to take care of the crowds and crowds of people. So when I stepped out of my my vehicle and I see the the lights and the tents around the courthouse and I smell food, I'm like, oh my God, this is like the Hampton County Watermelon Festival, <laughs> but there there's no celebration going on here. This is very serious, but it just had that vibe that um, for a small town guy like me from Hampton County, it had this this festival vibe, this this weird. Uh, Many media city was sprang up almost overnight around the Colleton County Courthouse. You, you kind of had a circus on the inside and a circus on the outside too, huh? Absolutely. That's a good way to put it. Dealing with the crowds, dealing with outside the courtroom, inside the courtroom, they just did an outstanding job. Everyone I talked to was impressed, and we can't say enough. Those first few days, the courtroom was not packed. That was jury selection and... It was primarily court personnel and, and media. Then when the trial started, the the judge had actually, because of the, the large media interest, the judge had actually created a media list, or the court did, and certain members of the media were given a reserved seat. You know, of course, local media like myself and the Colleton County, Walterboro newspaper, uh, they were given a, a reserve seat right up front, and then people who had been covering the story from the beginning, just like we were, the state paper, Post and Courier, Fitz News, they were put on the same row with us. So they gave, they knew that there were going to be media from around the world, but they put the local folks up front, gave us special treatment. We had a reserve seat, and that that was appreciated and needed, and it was it was. Uh, it was a good thing. And then it was kind of funny to see the national media kind of stuck to the back of the courtroom, the New York Times, <laughs> the, um, the Washington Post. and uh, So that was kind of amusing. But once we got to know all of these reporters from around the country and around the world, they, they, were, they were great people, nice people, doing the job just like we were doing. And so in the courtroom, as we're facing the judge... The first three rows were reserved for the Attorney General's office and SLED. <clears throat> then the media was right behind them. So I think I sat on row four uh, along with the local journal, local media networks that I mentioned a moment ago. And so you had several rows of media going back on the left and then the public. And on the right side, you had court personnel, members of the Murdoch family, attorneys, and then the general public. So 
where we were sitting, we had a pretty good view of, of Alex. We couldn't see him directly face on like you could if you were watching court TV or whatever. But I could see the side of his face. I could see his emotions. When he turned around, I could I, I had a really great view of the Murdoch family, and I saw and I could see their emotions. You know, I could you know throw a spitball and hit every one of them directly across the aisle if I wanted to, and uh, I could see the, the the variety of emotions on their face as the trial progressed, as graphic evidence was presented, as incriminating evidence was presented, and. If Alex turned around to interact with them, I could see him oftentimes telling one of them, I, I love you or, or I'll see you, you know, see you later or whatever. So we were in a very, we had a front row seat to history and it was a crowded front row seat. We, uh, the courtroom was at full capacity for, I'd say just about every day they allowed a certain number of people in in the general public, and after that, there were there were people that didn't get in. You had people lined up at uh, 5 a.m. in the morning to get in, and when we came out for lunch, you had more people lined up at lunchtime trying to get in and steal their spots. That is something I I suspected there had been some competition for the general um, seats, you know, the the general availability seats, but I had not realized there would be that kind of interest. That's remarkable. Uh, let me ask you this. Did you learn much during jury selection that surprised you? Was there anything that stood out to you as the attorneys were going through interviewing uh, candidates and you know issuing their strikes and so forth? I did learn a little, but it wasn't particularly surprising. Uh, one of the questions they asked was, do you know the Murdoch family? Um, do you have any connection to, to law enforcement, to the 14th Circuit, or to members of the Murdoch family? And if this would have been in Hampton County, I would expect everybody to stand up and say, oh, yeah, we know them. We, we, we went to school with them. We worked with them. We whatever. But I was <coughs> excuse me. I'm sorry. But I was uh, taking note of the large number of people here, one county over, still part of the 14th Circuit, and every group of jurors, they brought them in in groups, uh, in three or four separate groups, and every time they asked a question, are, do you, uh, are you in some way have some connection to, to the law, Murdoch Law Firm or the Murdoch family, you know, uh, it might be half a dozen, it might be a dozen, people would stand up. They asked the question, Have you? are you familiar with this case? Have you been following this case in the media, on podcasts? Uh, even more people stood up. So it wasn't particularly surprising, but it did reinforce the fact that this was a, a well-publicized, highly-followed case and a well-connected family. Yeah, and I, I could not help but wonder, just all cards on the table, whether there were 12 men and women in the, the 14th Circuit who did not have some sort of connection you know, to that family, given its long reach over the years. It's sort of like everybody's connected somehow. You just got to kind of figure out how exactly that is, right? Well, some of the connections were, I, you know, BS. Like one guy stood up and said, well, I went to the Murdoch Law Firm. I, I'm, I do heating and air work, and me and my company went and put in the air conditioner at the Murdoch law firm. Well, I don't think that 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 disqualifies you from jury duty. Sit back down, sir. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people who said they had absolutely didn't know anything about the case, hadn't read about it in the paper. I think there was some BS there, too. I mean, unless you're li living under a rock, um, like you said in one of your previous podcasts, uh, you, you had to at least heard a snippet over the radio or, or, or seen a headline on social media or something. So, um, I don't, you know, I, I don't necessarily take every statement, uh, at face value, but, um, surprisingly there were some jurors that were allowed that I thought would have been stricken. Uh, one of the jurors was the brother of a, uh, a Colleton County police officer who was actually, um, took uh, some small role in the, in the early in, in investigation. And I thought for sure, okay, they're going to strike that guy. But he didn't. He sat on the jury the whole time. And uh, 
he was the younger brother of a of a college county police officer. So that was that was interesting. Yeah, it is. That is. Um, yeah, there's always a certain amount of strategy on both sides as they're uh, as they're picking their picking their people. Let me ask you. Uh, there was some chatter about the lax or lax-ish treatment that Alex was given to be able to show up in a suit, you know, not always handcuffed. Um, was that a display of privilege or was that in fact uh, not unheard of in that particular courtroom under that particular judge's uh, jurisdiction? That's a good question. And, that, and, there, and I can answer that in two parts. The A lot of the chatter you hear from people is misinformed or, or lack of, of experience or knowledge about something. Um, when a defendant goes to court, and now I'm talking about South Carolina. I have no experience outside of the 14th Circuit. I don't know what they do in, in Louisiana or Florida or New York. But South Carolina, when a suspect comes forward uh, for a bond hearing or a bail hearing, he'll be in a prison jumpsuit. He'll have handcuffs on. Uh, he gets his hearing. That's his constitutional right. Then he's, he's either released or sent back to jail. Well, defendants on trial... Uh, unless they are abnormally crazy violent, they have rights. And I don't know if this is just common practice or if actually it's an established law. But the thought is, if you come, if you sit before a judge, a jury, television cameras, and you're wearing a jumpsuit and you're wearing handcuffs, you automatically look guilty. So it's common practice in South Carolina when you actually go to trial, not bond hearing, not bail, when you go to trial, you're allowed to your your lawyer is allowed to bring you a suit. You you don't enter the courtroom with handcuffs. Now, uh, Alex arrived at the courthouse with handcuffs on, and he draped his his uh, sports coat over them. But when you walk in that courtroom, you're not wearing shackles. You're not wearing, uh, you know, his lawyers would have would have had a, a fit a field day with that. You're making him look guilty. So that's common practice in in the state. Now, one area where I think he was given, uh, you know, special treatment. As an attorney, they allowed, the court allowed his, his, his attorneys to give him a special laptop and give him copies of his case files so he could help prepare his own defense. Okay. Now, how many murder defendants do you know is allowed to have a laptop computer in the jail cell um, I'm sure it wasn't you couldn't connect to the Internet and and uh, or contact someone and say, hey, come break me out or whatever. But how many common everyday run of the mill murder defendants get a computer in their jail cells? OK, you sit and you plan your defense. You know, to me, that was special treatment. But his appearance in the courtroom, absolutely not. You know, it did. It did make me wonder with respect to the, um, the sort of allowing him the dignity of his his own clothes and that kind of stuff i mean not to put uh too too light a point on it but he's not really a flight risk is he i mean he's one of the most visible people <laughs> in the certainly in, in that region probably in the whole state at that moment and as a result of this trial you know uh he's not going to make it very far before he's going to get spotted so I, I could understand that to a degree well if you um if he would have uh, became violent and attacked a uh, <clears throat> a jail employee or something, then that would have been totally different. You might have seen him in handcuffs, but he was a typical defendant in inside the the detention center. He was he was treated like they do. But you notice once he was convicted, when he came back on March third, he was convicted March seventh, March second. <clears throat> he came back on March third, and he was wearing the jumpsuit. He was wearing the handcuffs. He had already been convicted. So at that point, it didn't matter how he looked to the world, how he looked to the jury. So for six weeks, he's wearing a sports coat. Once he's convicted, he's back to wearing prison uh, uniform. And that's the way they do things here in this part of the country. Well, let's take a look at a couple of moments in the trial itself. Um, opening arguments. Uh, you're sitting there. You're watching attorneys, uh, both for the state and uh, for Alex himself. You know, you're watching them present their case. Um, in the interest of fairness, what I'd like to ask is, what did you think as you heard those opening arguments? 
was the most plausible claim on both sides. Well, I knew that Murdoch's attorneys were going to come out and say he's innocent, and they were going to do everything they could to create reasonable doubt. And they did. I, I wasn't surprised by their opening statements, and I wasn't surprised by their closing remarks. Basically, they wanted to tell the jury that how could Murdoch, this loving father, brutally murder his own wife and child? They Murdoch's defense attorneys were actually more graphic when they didn't even need to be than the state prosecution was because they wanted to show how how violent and graphic these these murders were and then paint a contrasting picture of Alex as this loving husband and father who could have never done these things. They wanted to come out in opening remarks <clears throat> and talk about how shoddy the police work was, how they didn't gather this evidence and this evidence and this evidence and how this evidence isn't real scientific proof of anything and uh, and basically create reasonable doubt. You know, there were two shooters. This, you know, let's let Alex, let's acquit Alex so we can go find the real killers. Now, the state, the state's opening remarks had a few um, surprises that we, that we didn't know and, and left a few questions that they answered as the trial went on. But I thought that Creighton Waters' opening remarks were just brilliant. He uh, and he, there were several moments of of oratory brilliance. I thought that he had during the trial. I don't remember if it was in his opener. Um, actually, I think it was when uh, his opening remarks to the jury. He basically uh, talked about this uh, perfect storm that Alex uh, was under of all his financial crimes looming over his head and he he used a metaphor to define what circumstantial evidence was and he talked about the rain outside it happened to be raining that day so off the cuff off the top of his head he's throwing out metaphors uh, about this perfect storm and it starts storming outside the Carlton County Courthouse and I said man this guy's brilliant I could listen to him all day you know, it's it's it is theater, isn't it? I mean, the, you know, let no one ever say that being inside a courtroom is not like watching a play. <laughs> I mean, when you get a performance like that, you know, you just got to sit up and take notice. That is something. Yeah, it was like six weeks. There were moments of brilliant oratory. There were gripping moments when you're on the edge of your seat, waiting to hear the next piece of information, and then every now and then they threw in the occasional. Um, boring uh, math class and boring biology class and we had to sit through highly technical scientific evidence so it was a it was a roller coaster ride up and down for six weeks you know one day you might be about to fall asleep in in, in your seat and the next day you're on the edge of your seat it was it was weird <laughs> yeah and you, you don't want to miss a minute you don't want to miss a minute well let's take a look at just a couple of pieces of the key evidence that was presented uh, on on both sides, crime capsule listeners, we love evidence. You know, that's um, that's the that's our bread and butter over here is looking at looking at what we've got comes from the scene and so forth. Um, so if we could just kind of run through these, uh, I'd love to get your perspective on them and kind of what you observed as you were sitting there listening to the case being presented in real time. I mean, big deal, of course, was made out of. Alex's clothing on the night, both the clothes that he was wearing uh, when police found him, freshly laundered and so forth, and then there's this raincoat. So what what what, did, what was your take on the kind of the twists and turns regarding uh, the clothing aspect? We don't know exactly what SLED and, and responding officers were thinking that night on the scene. Um, <clears throat> as I said, when it first happened, this investigation was hush-hush, and the world at large thought for a long time this had to be connected to the boat crash uh, involving Mallory Beach. <clears throat> but on the inside of this investigation, we learned we learned uh, details during the course of the trial. And when Collin County police officers and first responders and SLED arrived on the scene, 
some of them were listening to the 911 call on the way to the scene. It's a long ride out there to Moselle. And I didn't know this until the trial, but a lot of times the 911 dispatcher will play the 911 call itself. So the officer, when he gets to, he or she get to the scene, they have a background. They fully know, okay, there's a man here. His family's been killed. He's got a gun. They told him to put it down when we arrived. They, they know as much information as they possibly can. So Alex Murdoch started putting forth this narrative from the moment of the 911 call. He's telling 911 that he checked the bodies for a pulse. He, he tried to roll them over. Uh, you know, um, I don't remember if you mentioned the boat crash. I think he mentioned the boat crash case in the 911 call. It was redacted at first, but in the full call, you hear it. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yep. And now, now uh, you know, I may be wrong about that, but I think in the once we heard the full 911 call, he touches on the, the boat crash case and possible suspects. And then when police arrive on the scene, that's one of the first things he tells him is, is there was a boat crash uh, case and my son was getting threats. So he's putting forth this narrative early on, but officers like Laura Rutland, they arrive on the scene and they notice that, okay, well, this man said he checked the bodies for a pulse and there's blood all around these bodies, but there's no blood on his hands. There's no blood on his shoes, on his clothes. Uh, and I do believe it was Laura Rutland that testified that not only was his clothing and shirt clean, they smelled freshly laundered, like they just come out of a dryer. And <laughs> yeah. uh, so all of that, you know, we don't know exactly what they were thinking. Um, we don't know if, if there was general suspicion that night, but in their testimony, they uh, during the week of the trial, weeks of the trial, they were pointing out a lot of inconsistencies. In his statements. Yeah, and there was a large enough gap between the, you know, the murders themselves at, what was it, around 8.50 p.m. that night and the actual time of the call. I forget exactly how many minutes transpired between the murders and the the phone call, but uh, more than enough time to, you know, to go and try to change clothes or um, you know, contain the damage or so forth, at least an hour. Is that right? That's right. They think they were killed around 849, 850, based on um, cell phone uh, data, cell phone evidence. <clears throat> and he called 911 at 1006, 1007. There's, the dates are different depending on when he dials and when he picks up. I think the recording starts at 1007. Now, help me to understand one thing. I read in some of your reportage that the the issue with the blue raincoat was the kind of curiosity of the gun, gunshot residue. And as we know, GSR is a very, uh, very powerful evidentiary tool that we can now detect. But there was some kind of unusual dimension to where it was either on the inside of the, the raincoat, but not the outside, or it was on the outside of the raincoat, but not the inside. I wasn't quite clear on how that played. Can you help us to understand that? Sure, sure. Um all right, <clears throat> the state put forth a lot of evidence that some of it didn't really do a whole lot for their case. Some of it was incriminating, but um, <clears throat> wasn't the true smoking gun, you know, that we thought it was going to be. Uh, about a week after the murders, <clears throat> Shelly Smith, the housekeeper, or the caregiver, rather, for Alex's mother, um, noticed Alex came real early uh, in the morning, about 6.30 in the morning, and which was unusual for him. And he walked up the stairs uh, carrying a, a what she described as something like a big blue tarp, which uh, police say was actually, in fact, a raincoat, a large poncho raincoat balled up. So she mistook it for a tarp. And went upstairs, and uh, and then when he came down, he didn't have it anymore. Well, upstairs they found this, this large blue raincoat, and on the inside of the, of the coat, not the outside, if someone were shooting birds, for example, on a rainy day, you would expect to have gunshot residue on the outside of the coat. Yeah, well, on the shoulder, particularly, right? Yeah, I mean, where, your you're, shoulder, where, you're, where you got um, the it front, in the crook of your, you know, yeah, exactly, yeah. Right. Not so much on the back. Well, 
the inside had so much gunshot residue that they stopped counting. They stopped at 38 particles or whatever, which is apparently is a crazy high number. And they just stopped counting and said, hey, this thing is, is coated with, with GSR on the inside. And it fit the, the state's theory that he used it to wrap up the guns and dispose of them. And then for whatever reason, instead of disposing of the raincoat with the, with the firearms, he stuck it in his, in his mother's closet upstairs. So now the defense had a field day with that. Uh, Shelly Smith's testimony was a little inconsistent. She was very nervous on the stand. Um, this was a family that she had worked for and known and loved for years, and she didn't want to be the one to tell police anything about this case. But, and her statements, you know, she said tarp, and the defense said, well, this isn't a tarp, this is a raincoat. So, and there was no exact pinpoint to say, okay, was this Alex Murdoch's raincoat? Did, has anyone in the family ever seen him wear it? Do you have a receipt where he bought it? So that was one of those pieces of evidence that was incriminating, but <clears throat> it wasn't directly decisive. You yeah, you wasn't directly proof that Alex Murdoch had anything to do with that raincoat, other than one at times nervous and confused witness. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. It does make you wonder, I mean, if that is exactly what happened according to the state's theory that he had wrapped up the murder weapon uh, or weapons and disposed of them, um, you know, shouldn't he have known better as a prosecuting attorney (laughs) that, that, you know, uh, there are trace particles of all sorts of things that can get on any evidence that has touched other evidence? And, you know, I mean, why, why wouldn't he have tied that sucker in a plastic grocery bag with a couple of bricks and dropped it in the bottle, bottom of the bayou. I mean, what was he thinking? Yeah, there are a lot of unanswered questions still. I mean, we don't know uh, where the guns are, for example. We don't know um, why he didn't, if he, if he disposed of his bloody clothing, uh, why he didn't, you know, dispose of the raincoat. Uh, it, it's hard to say. I, I, I'm sure you've heard the theory that uh, subconsciously, every suspect does one little thing um, uh, that might could get them caught, or maybe subconsciously, a, a, a suspect in a crime like this won't, has this one little thing that, uh, as a thrill, like, okay, if you find this, you've got me. I'm going to get rid of everything else. I, I, I don't know. That is a very good question. Well, it's funny because you do mention the smoking gun. And, of course, that's what we don't have and never found. And, um, you know, it leaves, leaves us kind of scratching our our heads a little bit. Even, you know, Rita was saying so, you know, when we spoke to her. And I was just curious, I mean, how credible did you think was the claim that they were stolen when that claim was first presented you know this sort of raises a question of why were these guns stolen and used and not all the other guns that would have been on the property and that sort of thing they're just more questions and answers there but how how plausible was it in the moment of its appearance that theory well it was certainly very convenient that uh, a possible murder weapon was 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 quote unquote stolen or missing 
Uh, now the defense tried to, to do all it, they could to to put forth the 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 true narrative, I guess, that Paul Murdoch was an irresponsible uh, young man that he would leave guns and clothes and uh, and things all over the place. So um, <clears throat> they wanted it known that uh, that you know, yeah, it was very likely that, that Paul lost his gun or, or stole this gun. But one of his one of his own friends, Will Chapman, testified that hey, that gun didn't get lost around Christmas of, of 2020. We were shooting that gun during turkey season. We we shot that gun off the steps of the house just to sight in a new scope. We went to Ace Hardware in Hampton and bought this new red red light uh, scope, and we shot it uh, in March or, or April, right before the killings. And uh, so it was another case of a statement made by Alex Murdoch, which was the gun was lost around Christmas time being proved false or inconsistent by evidence or witnesses during the trial. Of which there was a staggering amount of repetition of that pattern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, which is, uh, you know, the history books will record in, in detail. Um, let, me, let me ask you, and I'm so grateful for your perspective, Michael, because there you are in the courtroom hearing this testimony, you know, which only some of it gets reflected in you know, the, the reportage after, and you know, the commentary, and yet you've got just such, such a front row seat, as you say. I want to ask you about the moment in the courtroom when Paul's last Snapchats uh, were, were shared. You wrote in one of your articles, and I'm just going to quote you real quick here. You wrote that hearing Alex's voice minutes before, you know, Paul was killed, quote, shredded his alibi, unquote. What, what was it like in that moment when those were played? You could see a reaction on his family, uh, on, on their faces. They kind of um, stiffened a little bit, uh, sat up on, uh, you know, on John Marvin's face and on Buster's face. Just this look of, of, disgust and certainty mixed together like uh you know which and and, and not to get on a side road i'm very confused about <clears throat> about their reactions and and john marvin's testimony i thought that in my conversations with him i thought he wanted to get to the, to the bottom his exact words to me were we want to get to the bottom of this uh and follow the evidence no matter where it goes we just want answers but it seemed during the trial that they were still supporting Alex and they still didn't believe that he had done this thing. But the looks on their face when, when that video was played and, uh, you know, told a totally, totally different story. I think they all knew that he had lied and he was there. And, um, and you mentioned Snapchat video, the, to be, to clarify, the, there was one Snapchat video, and it showed Alex wearing a certain outfit of clothing. All right. The video that incriminated him wasn't a Snapchat video. It was a cell phone video taken by Paul to be shared with his friend Rogan about the dog. I don't think it, unless I'm mistaken, I don't think it was published to Snapchat. I don't think it was intended to, Got it. to be public. It was from one friend to another. And the Snapchat video was important, but that video is what put him away. Thank you for clearing that up. I appreciate that. Let me ask you about another piece of evidence. We were speaking with Rita about um, two things. Number one was GPS data of, of course, where the, the three of them were on the compound. And um, why, why do you think Alex was unable to uh, destroy or kind of obfuscate the... Uh, the tracking, it seems like he, he might have been tech-savvy enough to know something. He certainly knew how to get into their phones and so forth. Was it just too late by that point uh, that the data had already been recorded, or was he just not savvy enough after all? On which on which particular phone? Uh, oh, well, I, I would start with maybe Paul's, actually, because that's, you know, he, he went first, yeah. Well, Alex was smart enough that when he committed the, the crimes, he didn't have his phone on or didn't have it with him. Um, 
his shown his phone and I don't have the exact times in front of me but his phone shows no activity from uh, earlier in the afternoon like six or seven something until 902 so his phone is either turned off or it's left in the house or the vehicle and shows absolutely no activity until 902 and then from 902 to 906 it shows a flurry of activity so he was smart enough to, to not have his phone on him while he committed the crimes. Now, he had no control over Paul and Maggie's phones because, you know, if you're going to sneak up and surprise, ambush somebody and kill them, um, you know, kind of you're going to be kind of hard-pressed to say, hey, can I, can I borrow your phone for a few minutes? And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, by the way, disregard this shotgun I've got in my hand and this raincoat I've, I've got here. Just, just give me your phone and we'll talk later, you know. I'm very unclear. A lot of questions about what, why he took Maggie's phone, what he did with it, why he threw it out the, the window, right there, very close to the to the crime scene. Um, but there's no uncertainty about Paul's phone. Paul's phone was an iPhone. It had a, a password, and he couldn't get into it. He was very protective and secretive with his phone. Uh, Alex couldn't get into it. It took investigators a year to fully crack and get that video that uh, taken at the dog kennel and get all of Paul's data off his phone. It took investigators almost a full year. That is remarkable. And that, of course, poses all sorts of interesting questions regarding, uh, you know, privacy uh, of evidence and so forth, which I will leave to someone far smarter than I am to unpack. <laughs> um, but yeah, let me ask you about this, the tire tracks, because Rita mentioned those last week and we were curious. Um, there were you know, sets of tire tracks in and around the scene from uh, different kinds of vehicles. And of course, once sled shows up, you know, things change. But um, we were wondering about the tire track pattern of the ATV on Maggie's leg, uh, was, there seemed to be a match there based on forensic evidence. Uh, was that ever explained? Uh, yes, it was. The The tire tracks on the ground, I don't think, from the state's uh, uh, viewpoint, weren't that critical. A lot of people came and went. You know, the, you had the, the kennel master came twice a day to feed and clean up. Uh, you had tracks from the ATV and... As your audience probably knows, a, a tire impression in in damp grass isn't going to tell you anything. You can't you can't pull a, a, a exact imprint off of that. But with Maggie's leg, um, uh, the tire uh, impressions on the ground, however, <clears throat> were important to the defense because they wanted to put forth the narrative that hey, these vigilantes could have drove right here, killed them drove off and you guys didn't even attempt to take tire impressions so it was important to them but the marks on maggie's leg i think the um the expert witness that touched on that best i believe was dr kenny kinsey and i, I may be wrong there have been so many witnesses over the course of this trial but uh the expert testimony was that he didn't think she had been run over by the by the ATV. He thought that uh, upon being shot, she had hit the ATV and, you know, collided with it in some way. And his exact testimony wasn't that, okay, this is a 100% match. This tire impression on her leg is a 100% match with this, with this ATV tire. That wasn't his testimony. His testimony was it, a tire like this tire or one like it made that impression on her leg that was his exact testimony well that that helps to provide context for um my last sort of evidentiary question or or sort of theoretical question for you uh which was about the two shooters and you know if the defense could claim that they're you know here are, here are patterns which point to somebody driving away that wasn't alex um you know, maybe that gives them just a little bit, a little bit more uh, water to hold in, in their case. But at the same time, I mean, I, I, I just have to go back to that moment when the cell phone video was shown. I mean, surely that must have also shredded the claim that there were two shooters at that point. I mean, surely that theory did not last past that day at trial, did it? Well, the defense is going to, you know, they're going to talk about um, two shooters. They're going to talk about 
um, vigilantes. They're going to do right up until the closing arguments. They're going to do everything they can to create reasonable doubt. Even if the evidence is clear that, that uh, you know, <clears throat> clearly contrary to their claims, their job is to say, hey, you can't prove that it wasn't two shooters. That's reasonable doubt. You can't prove that somebody else didn't drive up here and do it because you didn't take tire marks. Uh, so, you know, that's defense lawyers being, being defense lawyers, and, and that's to be expected and, and, and understood. I think there were three key pieces. If you had to boil down six weeks of, um, there were 400 exhibits of evidence and more than 70 witnesses that testified. And of all of that, here are the three things I think that the jury, four things that the jury considered and that won this case for the state. Number one, the circumstances and the financial perfect storm. They didn't just paint this vague picture that Alex Murdoch was, was worried about being exposed. On the very day that his wife and child were killed, his own law firm confronted him. June 7th, we, you know, prove you didn't take these legal fees. Three days later, he was facing a hearing in the boat crash case where he was expected to, to turn over his financial statements or convince the judge that he doesn't have to turn over. So that's number one. You know, even the judge commented when he sentenced Alex that you expect us to believe that June 7th was just this normal day when you had just been confronted for stealing $600,000 or $792,000. That's not plausible. That's not believable. So that's piece number one. Piece number two, the family weapons. The, the shells on the ground near the bodies matched the uh, rifle cartridges, cartridges on the ground, matched rifle casings found all over the Moselle property. It was clearly a family weapon that killed these two. And gang members and... Uh, and vigilantes alike, they don't just show up at a party and expect to, to find a gun when they get there. It's BYOB. It's bring your own gun, you know. Um, and uh, so that uh, that's the, the second key piece of evidence is the family weapon was used. The third is this video that shows Alex at 7. Let me get my times just right. Uh Seven, I think that video was taken, uh, 7.44, 7.55, and it lasted several minutes. Um, I'm sorry, let me back up. That video was taken about 8.44. There we go. 8.44, 8.45, Alex's voice has been identified in the background by multiple witnesses, and their phone ceased all meaningful activity around 8.50. So that puts Alex there. It proves him a liar. And the final piece is when Alex took the stand himself and the jury could see that he was trying to manipulate them. The state prosecutors called him in a couple of lies on the stand. He kept changing his story and his narrative to fit the evidence that had already been presented earlier in the case. So it really was those four things, I think, that, that won the case for the state. We could not ask for... A better summary of those last the days. Thank you so much for that. Uh, I don't know if you want, if you wanted all that, but that to me that's what was important. Those four, um, you know, a lot of the one particle of gunshot residue on his hands, a lot of the DNA stuff t was was led to nowhere. But those four things sealed the deal for the jury, and those four uh, things put Alex away. No, it's a remarkable story, and I absolutely encourage our listeners to look up your coverage um, in the Hampton County Guardian, and I think the Augusta Chronicle has also uh, re reproduced uh, some of it as well um, to, to go into more detail. Uh, is there one other, is there another place that you would recommend them to find your writing on the topic? We have published all of the Murdoch stories uh, from our Greenville um, website, so go to Greenville News. Um, now these stories have been published all over the the country and from the in the USA Today network, um, and of course Augusta, Savannah, uh, you know, all over the Southeast. But they're published out of Greenville News. So if you want every single story that I've done, 
dating back for, um, you know, I would I would go to Greenville News for for the past couple of years, and then the older stuff you can find at the Augusta Chronicle. Well, that is a rich resource uh, to draw on, and we are very grateful. Just a couple more questions for you now that you know the verdict is in and the sentencing and so forth. Everybody knows what happened there. Um, you write that with respect to what happens now. Um, there's there's a lot of work to do, so to speak. And I, I just want to quote, uh, you wrote this great article, and I, I want to quote part of it to you because I thought it just really summed up that sense of the the, the dense fabric of their influence in, in the county. You know, you say, quote, here we still walk under the shadow of the towering law firm that housed Murdoch's crimes. We still do our business at Palmetto State Bank, the same bank, Murdoch used to steal millions, and at the Hampton County Courthouse, where portraits of three generations of Randolph Murdochs still hang above the jury box. I mean, there's an element in in which you know no one gets to escape this for a while, isn't there? <laughs> I mean, it's gonna take time. It's gonna take time. Well, it, it's just different here in Hampton County. I mean, we're a small town, so a lot of it's just purely practical. Um, there are only three banks in, 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 uh, in Hampton and Barnville, uh, well in the whole County, really, there are only three banks. Uh, it may have a different branch in another town, but, um, in the case of myself and people in my family, you know, you may have one account here in this bank and one account here in this bank, but it's kind of hard, even though you may have hard feelings about, uh, maybe a certain member of that banking family, um, Russell Lafitte, who has been convicted in federal court as an accomplice in Murdoch's financial crimes. I mean, you're talking about a, uh, you've been doing business with a local bank and it's primarily one of only two or three banks in the county. You're kind of hard pressed to just go there and say, okay, I'm going to pull all of my stuff out of you, this bank and put them over here. No, you just keep doing business as usual. Um, the you go to the soccer field in town, the baseball field. You see Parker Law Group on the side on the back of the kids' jerseys. You know they're still putting money into the community, donating. Before that, it was PMPD. You know they did a lot for the community, and on one hand, and they hurt the community on the other. But you know, you we still put their names on the back of our kids' jerseys. So uh, it's a small town. I mean you. It's kind of hard to 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 get away from 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 any connection to this story. What do you, what do you make of uh, the appeal process here? I mean, of course, as you write, he has ninety nine other indictments uh, and and potential charges, you know, that may come against him. But as far as the um, the appeal for this particular conviction, what what do you make of that? Lawyers are going to be lawyers. I mean, they they've got to try. They've got to. Um, they've got to, to shoot their shot and do their best for their client. I, I personally don't think they have a leg to stand on. They're going to try to say that the judge, they did not get a fair trial because the judge allowed all these financial cases as evidence. Uh, when the judge clearly held a hearing uh, without the jury present, called an in-camera hearing, he heard a couple of days of testimony just about whether or not to allow that the financial evidence um they're going to try to say that alex uh you know and, and i don't know this for a fact but i'm but i've uh in one of their in one of in jim griffin's statement after court he made some comments about um alex incriminating himself and i'm thinking well you can't hang an appeal around that he, he voluntarily took the stand you know uh they advised him not to and, and yet he did it anyway so they're gonna try. They're gonna. They're gonna try to hang an argument anywhere they can. But ultimately, I don't think it's gonna. It's gonna be successful. Well, if it goes anywhere, we know that you will be on the case, and uh, that you know when that bat signal shines up in the night sky, we know who's <laughs> gonna respond. Michael, we really cannot thank you enough. Uh, we know you must be so exhausted from covering this nonstop, but we are so grateful for the time that you have shared with us and we really do from all of us here at crime capsule we hope you get the rest that you deserve well I, i've got to write the, the the finishing chapters of the second book and then uh we're going to follow this case through 99 financial crimes uh 
boat crash lawsuit is coming up in in August and August 14th in Hampton County unless it gets rescheduled so I'll be writing about this story for the next year couple of years and in the meantime I think I've become a fan of Crime Capsule I'm gonna be listening to you guys uh, you're too uh, kind you're too kind well tell our listeners where they can find your books right now you can go to Amazon and uh, pre-order uh, Wicked Hampton County or you can wait till it comes out and, and order it on on my Amazon authors page you can uh, go to Arcadia History Press. I'm assuming they, they, they'll sell the books there on the website. I'll be holding local events, doing book signings, uh, you know, readings, things of that nature. And if you come to, to the Low Country, I'm sure you'll find it at, at a bookstore near you. But I've also heard that uh, the Images of Hampton County book was found as far away as... Uh, Barnes and Noble in California, so I think you won't, you won't have a problem finding uh, Wicked Hampton County wherever Arcadia and History Press books are sold around the country. I think you can find it. Well, I have no doubt that this uh, this experience will shine an even greater light on all that you've done. So, uh, listeners, y'all know what to do. Thank you, Michael, so much again. This has been a total joy. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks as always for listening. Our guest has been Michael DeWitt Jr., author of Wicked Hampton County, forthcoming soon from the History Press. Pre-orders are available at all major booksellers. We hope you've enjoyed our surprise mini-series on the Murdoch trial. We'll be back soon with more great authors and more compelling cases. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast.